0: So um, I'm giving you our text that we'll be looking at today. It was actually in the lectionary readings which the liturgical churches like Episcopal and Catholic use every week. We use them also. We only have one reading though. This was from last Sunday. And it's a setup for the I am the bread of life. Because before Jesus said I am the bread of life, you know, like metaphorically, he gave people bread, like, because they were hungry and they ate it. And that's what that text is. And I've kind of put subtitles on it to break it down for you. Um, but we're going to be looking at it in the context of some of the stories that Jesus and his disciples would have been familiar with in uh, what we now call the Old Testament. So, um, just to set it up, um, my wife, whom I met, mentioned, Julia, has a cottage. Number one, I like having a wife who owns a cottage, it's very convenient. And the the last few years we've been up there, there's like a meager patch of milkweed right outside the front door of the cottage. And the butterflies are super scarce. And you know, like we're in a a global butterfly shortage, along with bees. I think half of the crops that we depend on for food are fertilized by, by butterflies. And the meager beaver has been messing with the milkweed is the problem. And so we've been paying attention to this. So I was surprised when we were up there last to see this milkweed patch had essentially doubled, both in size and vitality, and it was swarming with monarch butterflies. Like, you literally couldn't count the monarch butterflies on this little patch of milkweed. And I realized, well, somehow the abundance of this year was hidden in the the meagerness of last year. Like, how did that meager little patch become this abundant patch that was supporting all this monarchial life? there must have been some catalyst for that transformation. So some fact, you know, catalyst in chemistry is the factor that's added to the equation that makes things interact. So there was either less moisture at a critical time in the growing season for the milkweed or more sun, or maybe some do-gooder biologist neighbor came by to fertilize the milkweed patch. We don't know, but something catalyzed that, that growth. So Jesus did a bunch of abundance out of meagerness signs like works of wonder that signified something more about what he was about what he was doing and these are not something out of nothing signs these aren't like poof you know something out of nothing but a lot out of an offered little so many different signs like that in both testaments a lot out of an offered little so john six six is our text Um, I'm just going to compress the early part of it here. Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is the setting. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. So he was in his ascendancy phase in terms of popularity because of the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain you know, not a really high mountain, and sat down there with his disciples. That was so that he could address the crowds from the the elevation. Now the Passover was near when he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him six months wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little one of his disciples Andrew Simon Peter's brother said to him there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they among so many people and and, you know the rest of the story is pretty great uh, Jesus give thanks for the bread and the fish. Then he starts giving it away. And in the giving, it multiplies um, in his hands. And so when he's done, the crowd is like bread gorged, you know. They're like going to Zingerman's Roadhouse where you eat from the bread basket. And you forget, oh, there's other stuff besides this awesome bread. And, and they're asking for the check and the styrofoam take-home box uh, with no room enough for dessert. Everyone's just filled, overflowing with leftovers a little bit of background. The word Bible is is to many of us a a very intimidating word. It's loaded with all sorts of cultural baggage, you know, the Bible. The word Bible just means books. And it it means books plural. So what if you thought about it like that? It's like when, when someone pulled out the Bible, it just said books on it. Or the other term is scripture. And that just means writings, script. So if we could think of it like that, it'd be like books. Oh, this is a collection of writings. And it's not just one, it's like many different books. And so it's multivocal. It's from many different perspectives. We wouldn't expect it all to make sense together or not contradict itself and all that if we just understood that the Bible means the books, The writings, the law of Moses writings, the wisdom writings, including the Psalms, the Song Book of the Bible, the erotic literature of the Bible, the Song of Songs, the prophetic writings of the Bible, and what we call the New Testament. Those are the two main divisions of what we call the Bible. This is Christian language speaking now, Old Testament and New Testament. So Old Testament is like Genesis up through the prophets, and New Testament is Jesus, and then the writings that followed Jesus. Um, now, it's very common for most of us are Gentiles, meaning we're not Jewish, and it's most, most common for us to think of the New Testament as like the more fun part of the Bible. It's the nicer part of the Bible compared to the Jewish Old Testament, we call it. We're forgetting that all the books are essentially Jewish writings spanning probably only like 600 years. So the writings first came together like in 500 BC at the Babylonian exile of the Jews into into Babylon when the writings were collected to about maybe 100 uh, uh, AD or the Common Era. So it's like 600 years that these writings. It might be a little bit better now. The New Testament is pretty old now too. So maybe we should call the, old, the New Testament old and the Old Testament older. So these are the old and the older writings before us. Jesus and his disciples were Jewish, of course, and they knew the stories of their people. They weren't like in a world like ours where there's all these competing stories and you know we all have our little micro niches in terms of the stories that are meaningful to us. They just had a common set of stories that they'd heard from Childhood, And they were stories that they didn't read, they heard from people they knew and loved and their uncles and this sort of thing. And they were the stories of their people. So when Jesus said, and that's in the middle section of the way I've set up the writing for you today. When Jesus said, where can we get enough bread to feed this crowd, to feed this mom? What he was actually doing was triggering for them. A very familiar story they all knew about. And it was their memory of the prophet Elisha, who was the prophet who succeeded Elijah. So Elisha succeeded Elijah. The two big prophets, Elisha, got two, like a double portion of Elijah's like power. So Elisha was really a powerful prophet in terms of deeds. Um, So, they also already had, like, Elisha and Elijah very much on their minds at this time. Like, Elisha and Elijah. These were the stories everyone was thinking about because of what Jesus was doing. So, who was Elisha's successor to Elijah? And the people of Jesus' time expected an Elijah figure to appear in advance of the Messiah, the long-awaited one. So an Elijah figure is going to appear, someone much like the prophet Elijah of old, and then to be followed by the Messiah. So Jesus said John the Baptist was that Elijah figure. Stick with me here. The plot is not going to get too thick for too long, and then we'll be on. Um, Which made Jesus... An Elisha figure, if you're following me, okay? John the Baptist was the Elijah figure. That makes Jesus the Elijah figure, the big, powerful prophet guy. So it's like Sonny Liston is followed by Muhammad Ali, you know. Some of you know what that means. Or Elvis was followed by the Beatles. Or Elijah is followed by Elisha. John the Baptist is followed by Jesus. So it's really exciting times when something big is followed by something Even. Bigger, And that's the mood of the whole situation. So what kind of signs did Elisha, this powerful prophet of old, perform? Well, he received meager offerings. And he turned those meager offerings into an abundance as he kind of gave them away. So Elisha, long before Jesus, had a big crowd to feed. And he only had like a few dinner rolls, and it's the same setup as Jesus here. It's like, okay, what are we going to do to feed this crowd? He says to his disciple, wow, there's way too many people for what we have. Where are we going to get enough for this? Well, you give them something. It's the same thing going on. He gave them away. They multiplied. Everyone was filled with leftovers. So when it says Jesus said this to test them after asking, how are we going to feed these crowds? It wasn't like he was asking the wealthy politician how much a gallon of milk costs. Remember that one? When that was a thing? I didn't know. I think it was Bush. Didn't know. The first Bush. It wasn't like, where can we get enough bread for this crowd? Oh, Costco. That's where you go. No. It was, do you see what's going on here? The right answer to his question was, oh my gosh. Are you going to do what Elisha did? So, Andrew, Peter's brother, response was, well, there's a boy over there with five loaves and two fishes, and they were barley loaves, just like in Elisha. That was his sly way of egging Jesus on, like, do it now. (laughs) Do it, you know, go for it. Pull in Elisha. That would be awesome. (laughs) So, the thing is, as entertaining as this uh, setting is, this is like right where we live our lives, like, right? I mean, between meagerness and abundance. And fear is like always telling us that we live in a world of scarcity, that there's not enough, there's not enough. And we're always afraid when fear is working on us, there's not enough time, there's not enough money, there's not enough people who love me, there's just, there's, I don't have enough wisdom, I'm not enough. Fear turns life into a competition. So we feel like we're 12 kids eyeing a a cake with eight pieces. Faith, which in the Bible is the opposite of fear, sees abundance hidden potentially in meagerness. That's what faith, faith is like a lens, just in the same way that fear is a lens. So Elisha's barley loaves are the last in a sequence of these scarcity into abundance signs in um, that book is called Second Kings. There's this widow on the last jar of oil who offers it to Elisha and it multiplies. And then it ends that sequence with the barley loaves talking about Elisha now. The same message. Offer your eager portion and see what happens when the divine catalyst is added to that meager portion. So... The catalyst is key. I'm um, hearkening back to my earlier days uh, raising kids in like the Wilson household. And um, my then youngest daughter, Grace, is in middle school and we're playing foosball at the family holidays. You know, foosball in the bars, it's like soccer, but you know, the things and you can't spin it and rules. And four people are playing and Grace is matched with Uncle Kit, who's by far the best Football player at that time. And Grace is by far the worst. That's why she's with Uncle Kit. But I literally watch. I, was, I think I was with Jesse. Because I was like midland, And he was darn good. And we, we were in the cat seat. But I watched that shrewd Uncle Kit. And he's like a salesperson. So he knows how to encourage people over the course of 10 minutes while Grace is playing. He's going, Grace, that's awesome. Grace, you're amazing. Yes, that's it. He was just a constant stream of encouragement. I literally watched Grace go from being like a middle-ranking football player to being like a force to contend with over 10 minutes through the catalyst of Uncle Kit's encouragement. So Over the course of a lifetime, you know, of course, meagerness and abundance. We might be in abundance phase right now, listening to this. Or we might be in meagerness, scarcity phase. Or we might be in abundance phase in this area of our life, and real scarcity in this area of our life. It's like goes back and forth. So I, you know, I had a house in Ann Arbor that was filled with, at one time, with five kids. And over a single year, The last of the kids are gone. I've become a new widower. I'm rattling around in that big house like a single penny in a penny jar. And it was like my previous abundance made my new scarcity seem even scarcer. Because we're always comparative in how we think of ourselves, right? So what the Elisha story... Uh, add to the feeding of the 5,000. And it was in the you know, in the imagination of everyone who who were part of this feeding of the 5,000 story and the early hearers of this story. What Elisha's, Elisha's story adds is the f- bleak feeling that we have when we are in scarcity phase. Even when we've been in and out of scarcity and abundance, we know maybe this too shall pass. There's a bleak feeling feeling we have in scarcity phase. And that's like how we feel when the meager beaver has been gnawing away at our supply of uh, trees. The feeding of the 5,000, I don't think give us a, gives us a feel of this because it's told through the lens of the disciples and their anxiety about how we're going to feed this big crowd because Jesus is putting it all on them. Whereas the first in that sequence of the Elisha stories um, is really told through the experience of scarcity, this, uh, this widow. So I'm going to read it to you here. Um, now a woman from the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha saying, your servant, my husband, is dead. So think about it. This is a woman who's married to a guy who is part of a band of people called the, the sons of the prophets. And Elijah is probably the lead prophet in that group. So she's married to like a God-lover guy who can't make any money and provide for her and is going around doing his God stuff all day and things are already a little bit short. You know, it's like, it's like you know, you're married to a preacher man who wants to start a church from scratch and is like, oh great, I wish you could write code, for example. <laughs> um, and she's saying to, to Elisha now, y- y- your servant, my husband... Is dead. You yourself know that your servant held Yahweh in awe. He was a real God lover. But a creditor has come to take away my two children as slaves for himself. Just think about that. I mean, like all this stuff at the border, parents being separated from their children. It's like, wait, this is bad. This is your own kids are now in somebody else's hands who doesn't care about them nearly as much as you care and has like that kind of power over them. This is, this is a very bleak experience for this woman. Alicia, Alicia said to her, what can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? She said, your handmaid has nothing at all in the house except for a cruise of oil. He said, go borrow vessels for yourself from outside, from all your neighbors, empty vessels, get all their Tupperware, do not skimp, and come in, close the door behind you and behind your children, and pour oil into all these vessels while the full one's set aside. I like it in this case, Jesus did the big thing, you know, gave away the bread, and the disciples did. But this woman and her kids... Get to like do the thing behind closed doors. Isn't that like an empowering thing that Elisha did for her? And then set the full ones aside. So she went from him and closed the door behind her and behind her sons. Now we learn the children are two boys. As they were bringing them to her, she she kept on pouring. And it was when the vessels were filled up that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. He said, There is no other vessel. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, he said, go sell the oil and pay off your debt. You and your children will live on the rest. Isn't that just is a great story? And it gives us a feel for the woman's um, experience of the whole situation. So last Sunday, I went to a little Episcopal church up north in a town called Detour. How many of you, anyone been to Detour? Um, a town named Detour you know, does not share in the same inflated self-esteem that a town like Ann Arbor has, for example, you know. But I like what this town Detour did with their name. They spell it like Tour de France. So, it's capital D, lowercase e, capital T-O-U-R. So, it's Detour, you know. But everyone just calls it Detour. And those is kind of a, if you're in detour, it's like you're on a detour. You're not meant to be going there that day. And this is a little Episcopal church in detour. Um, and, and they are all excited because Julia's a priest and they don't always get a priest. And so they can't do the mojo for the communion. They don't have the real communion, but she's there. So she's going to do the thing and have the communion. And she asked me to give the homily. So I gave the homily and I gave it on this particular text. And I was able to say to that group of people what I wouldn't have been able to say here because they, in a sense, you are very much my people. Like you are my main people. But they, for a little while, felt a little bit like my people in a way that you don't feel like my people because they were all old they were all old. I'm talking average age, 75. The largest age bracket cohort absolutely would have been in the 80s. I love going there because I feel like, okay, they know what old starts to feel like. And I feel like I'm young old when I'm around them. With you, I feel like I'm old old. And so, like, I got a thing I got to work out. So, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this and I'm saying, you know, many of, many of us in this sacred space are, are in the back nine of life. So, our next big transition isn't going off to college, is starting a career. Our next big transition is the mother of all transitions. And I, I tell him, you know, I didn't realize that how long the run-up to this can loom in life. Like, I remember when I turned 55. And I, I used to call myself middle age. like starting in my 50s, I call myself middle age, and then at some about 55, and I did the arithmetic. 55 times 2 is 110. So calling yourself middle aged when you're 55 is a very optimistic <laughs> assessment of your age. And that's when you start thinking about, oh, the next big transition for me is, wow. Uh, at this stage of my life, I can actually think, I think about death every day. That's not morbid. But I think about my own death, the fact that I'm going to die. I think about it at least one time a day. Now, while I'm doing this, the whole place, and these are white Episcopalians, mind you. They're with me, and I can tell from their bodies. Like, they're nodding their heads. They're like, oh, yeah. Like, cause they're like, you know, they're dealing, dealing with this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I got them in the palm of my hands with this. This is amazing when you can grab an Episcopal crowd like that. <laughs> and then I remember um, how my stepdaughter, many of you know, Oceana, she's 19, started to refer to our reconstituted family as our gross little family. That's when I knew she was kind of settling into my participation in her, her what was like her family, Julie and herself. And we, we all came together in the wake of a significant loss. Um, Oceana lost her dad too soon. Julia lost her first husband. I lost my first wife. And so we all had this shared significant loss in our recent past. And I knew that I was being like I was in the inside track as Oceana's stepdad as I'm leaving one day, leaving the house, and I heard her call out to me. She's, she's, she can really belt it out, um, even in just normal speech. She called out to me, though, as I'm leaving the house, the door's open, the person's walking their dog in front of me, and she says, Don't die, Mr. Ken. And I yelled back at her, we're all going to die, but just probably not today. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about that guy walking his dog, <laughs> listening to this, this exchange. But that's just like part of our, our world and experience. But, you know, I look out at this crowd and I'm like, I know many of you and I know many of your stories. And I realize that though you're much younger, many of you have suffered actually quite significant losses. Or I've done weddings where the parents weren't at the wedding. I, I've, I've seen people, you know, just ripped out of their previous life and deposited in a new city for the first time or losing significant relationships and church, beloved church communities because of what's going on around us, all the, this hinge of history that we're in. And so there, there are many of you who, who can identify with these losses. Um... This meagerness experience. And every time you go through a phase of scarcity, it doesn't matter if you're coming right out of abundance or you have abundance in some other area of your life, you feel vulnerable in scarcity and meagerness. I mean, that's how you know you're in that mode. And each time we're in that meagerness phase, we're tempted to wonder, maybe scarcity gets the last word after all. You know, like maybe there's the final shoe that drops and then it's just... And that's it. And we don't bounce back. Fear. The fear lens comes on. And so I think it's especially important for us. Because this is just our human condition. We're in this all the time. Is that week after week, we come to, uh, to this communion table. Which would be called an altar if it were an Episcopal church. And we're offering ourselves to God as we participate in this communion meal. That we will in a few, little bit of a while here. And we're doing it almost like that uh, widow offering her last cruise or last jar of oil. She's just, it's all I've got. Here I am. You know, I just offer myself to you. And so what we sometimes forget is that is the exact same way that Jesus, whose offering we celebrate at communion, that's how he offered himself to God. I mean, the offering of Jesus to God may seem to us like an impressive offering, It was actually an offering to us. (laughs) Um, But it may have seemed very meager to him at the time. Because remember, at the time of Jesus' death, his movement, his messianic movement was in total shambles. The crowds had shrunk. The 12 main leaders had scattered. Peter, who was the main leader, had publicly denied him and Jesus heard it happen the prospects for the Jesus revolution were bleak. If Jesus had done any self-assessment as a normal human being at that time, he would have judged himself a failure. So in the end, Jesus offered what he had, which was what we have, which was his vulnerable, powerless, nearly naked, and dying self. So the Elisha figure, that's Jesus, became the widow on her last jar of oil at the cross. And he offered himself in hopes, and that's all he had was hope, in hope that his meager offering would again be catalyzed by the God of abundance and something wonderful would emerge from it. So the wisdom of old people is that old people know we can't take our abundance with us. So hopefully old people start giving their stuff away and thinning out their books and all that kind of stuff, not to leave all that to their their heirs, you know. Um, we know that we can't take our abundance with us in the mother of all transitions. So in the end, we only really have our vulnerable selves to offer. But if Jesus is any sign to us, He's a sign that this is enough. That's enough. That meager offering absolutely is enough for a God of resurrection to work with. So I'm just thinking as we come to communion, I would just um, invite you to have that um, motif or that theme or that image in the back of your mine. Um, you know, if you haven't been to communion much um, here, we have people standing up front offering first the bread, then the wine or the grape juice. And many people will receive the bread with this, this kind of a gesture. And then a the person puts the piece of bread in your outstretched hands and uh, says, the body of Christ given for you. So it's an offering to us interestingly. Um, and that gesture is a very, is a worshipful gesture. And, and it is a gesture of a priest. It's basically, I offer you this. You know, you higher being, I offer you this. And what if we thought of ourselves being the offering when we go for communion? And then God through Jesus is offering himself to us. Is that Jesus offering himself to an angry God to mollify his wrath? It's Jesus offering his broken body and his shed blood to us because we're the ones who are filled with wrath and all the violence in the world so let's have our little time of um, quiet reflection we can take a couple of minutes I, I'm like going to break this up into three little chunks I'll tell you what we're going to do in advance and then we'll just walk you through it and you can participate or just relax during this time if you don't like these sorts of things and first what I'll just invite you to do is settle into your chair and get, get yourself, you know, relaxed. And maybe close your eyes and just pay attention to your breathing for 30 seconds or a minute. And then I'm going to ask you to um, try to um, regard yourself with no judgment, without any assessment. But to just think of yourself as like a fellow human being along with all the other um, human beings on the planet, what are there, eight billion of us, like to think of yourself as not special and just one human being among a bunch of human beings. And so don't even bother assessing yourself, no judgment. And as something comes up like, oh, I don't like this about myself or I'm awesome or whatever, we're thinking about an offering, just gently return your focus to, your, I would suggest, your breathing. Because that's it was in our song. The breath of life is the breath of God. The thing we share with all created creatures, you know, mammals is breath. So just fo- refocus on your breath instead of judging yourself. And then for the final little section, I'll just invite you to imagine that picture of that gesture of holding your hands up as if you're to receive communion. Only you're offering yourself, your meager offering, like that widow, uh, and you're making that offering to a God of abundance. Okay. So let's just do the first part. Um, Take a minute to relax, get comfortable. And if you'd like to gently close your eyes, that's fine. And just pay attention to your breathing. Maybe some good couple of deep breaths, maybe in through the nose and out through the mouth. For the next solid minute, I just invite you to um, regard yourself, if you do, without any judgment or assessment whatsoever. And if you, if anything floats through your mind that's different than that, just gently return your focus to your to your breathing, in and out. The thing that makes you the same as other living creatures. take A full minute to be present without judging or assessing yourself. And now, if it's helpful, I just invite you to imagine um, that gesture of extending your hands together upward um, as you're offering. And picture yourself, if you can, as like the equivalent of the woman who, the widow who offered her last jar of oil. Just sit with that picture for a little bit and we'll be done. Amen. Okay.